Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, we speak with the teams behind Architecture Digest and also the Condé Nast Traveler team to talk about their May 2023 editions, showcasing the best of new design and new places to visit this year. Plus, an interview with former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, now in charge of Prospect Magazine. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with an impressive lineup of guests from the AD and Condé Nast Traveler teams. And they are here to talk about the May 2023 issues, which are out this week, highlighting the best of travel and design this year. We also discuss the international collaborations between the different editions worldwide and, of course, some of the highlights we will find in the issues. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. What a pleasure. I'm joined here with four people, actually, from uh, AD and Condé Nast Traveler. We have Sam Cochran here, a Global Features Director for AD. We have Kamal Sharma, Head of Editorial Content for AD India. We have Ati Manon, Global Director Digital for Condé Nast Traveler. And Sarah Allard, Editor Digital for Condé Nast Traveler UK. That's super exciting to have you all here to talk about the May 2023 issues for both AD and also CNT Condé Nast Traveler. Perhaps I'll start with San and Kumau as well from Architecture Digest. I was having a look at the new issue. Very happy as well that Lina Bobardi has been mentioned. I love her as a Brazilian. But San, first of all, tell us the importance of the May issue. Is, is the time for new things, for excitement, right? I, I think it's one of the issues that I most look forward uh, for the year when it comes to AD. We all feel a sense of sort of excitement and renewal in spring. And our May issue is, we call it in, in the United States, the international issue. We have projects from around the world, but we also have a package that's devoted to sustainability that sort of reinforces our shared commitment to our planet. And so that package is a sort of collection of interesting ideas for sustainable innovations going forward. And I know that that theme is interpreted around the world in different ways and I know, Kamal, you sort of jumped on that in your own sort of fashion. I was going to ask, actually, Kamal as well, because, you know, Amy Astley wrote in her editor letter about how collaborative all the international editions have become. And I think the May issue more than ever, actually, right? Tell us a bit more and your involvement as well with the new issue. First of all, to just sort of complete what Sam was saying earlier, that yes, it is, you know, sustainability is a sort of a running theme, but... It's a stronger theme in that in our May issue as well, the AD India May issue, which is uh, slightly different from the AD US. I mean, as much as we sort of share content, it's still significantly local. But sustainability as a theme sort of is going as an underground to all our issues. Like if there is a story that has a strong sustainability angle, we always push that more than anything else. But yes, this issue has a sort of sense of summer. It has a sense of freshness. It also has a sense of what is this fresh look at sustainability? It shouldn't be this sort of jargon that we throw around, but how do people live? And what is this? I like to call it a little more sensitivity to how we live and inhabit spaces because, I mean, when you design or when you build, you're already unsustainable. I mean, there is a bit of a gimmick there. But at the same time, to be a little more sensitive to how we're building, how we're living, 
what materials we're using. And the May issue has a sort of strong sense of that comment. And moving to Condé Nast Traveler as well, you mentioned sustainability as well. It's interesting that it's not just collaboration between AD, but, you know, there's a similar theme as well, I feel, in Condé Nast Traveler, right? Ati, perhaps you can tell us a bit more. And also the main issue for Condé Nast Traveler is also about the new, right? Because you, you've released the hot list, which is also super exciting. Yeah. The May is our big hot list special. This annual list is a labor of love and a source of great excitement for our global team of editors and contributors who spend the year prior visiting, reviewing, vetting the entries. And what emerges is a carefully curated list that unveils the newest hotels, restaurants, cruises, museums, destinations, and transportation. I think I have all of it across the globe. And while it's tempting to think that these are sort of off the moment, I think it's important to know that we put our faith in these brands that are setting new standards for service, for design, for diverse and inclusive practices, for sustainability. And we really believe that they are here to stay and for you to visit and revisit again and again. And this year, interestingly, talking about sustainability, for the first time, and this feels pretty major, we have a spot in Antarctica, the space-themed echo camp, which offers a rare opportunity to sort of immerse yourself on land, let's say, you know, instead of uh, an expedition cruise ship, but is also steered with really robust environmental parameters. But that's just one of so many exciting entries. I saw that camp in Antarctica. It's very exciting. I mean, that's definitely on my to-do list at some point, at some point in my life. And Sarah, you're part of a Condenance Traveler here in the UK. Tell us a bit more about the hot list. And, and again, I want to ask you as well about the collaboration between the different editions for Condenance Traveler. Is it happened the same way as, as with AD? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it's something that we're all still kind of figuring out and learning every single day. But we're so lucky we have the most incredible teams in all of our markets and yeah we we chat and we collaborate every single day for example the sustainability project that Artie will probably mention a little bit that was a really collaborative project that we all worked on as global teams and the result just means that it speaks to every market it has that kind of touch across every market that makes sure it kind of really engages those users there but it really it just gives us that bigger sort of look at how it will all work as a bigger picture so yeah, that was a brilliant project. But yeah, with the hot list, again, exactly the same. We work really closely with the other teams. It's a very long and very kind of gets a bit argumentative at times. We're talking about what those spots are going to go to because it's such a limited list. And there are so many incredible openings in the last 12 months that everyone wants to mention. So it's a really fun exercise kind of putting that all together. But we're really proud of the list that we've got, as Artie mentioned. Um, we have some great cruises on there. We have this incredible one called Seaborn Venture. And it's just basically like a purpose-built expedition vessel. And it's dedicated to the Arctic and Antarctic regions. And it's kind of like an adventure cruise, but for people who are very used to their creature comforts, it's super luxury. The kind of design is very Aspen, ski chalet. And it's just very cozy, especially when you've got the backdrop of those incredible Arctic elements around you. So that's just one example. But yeah, it's such a fun list. And again, like you said, it's so good for bucket list checking off. Loads of great spots on there. Absolutely. I, I love to do some cuttings actually from Condé Nast Traveler because then even if I don't go straight away, then like, oh, two years after, okay, 
maybe I'll finally go on this cruise to Antarctica. Who knows? And Stan, coming back to you, NAD, give us perhaps a little preview of the stories in Asia. I read it. It's fantastic. As I said, I was very happy to see Lina Bobadi there. But tell us about some of your highlights from the issue. Oh, wow. I mean, there's there's so many. I mean, I think this issue hits a lot of notes that we always like to hit. There are designers' own homes. There's the Madrid home of a designer named Isabel Lopez Casada. There's another home in Spain outside Madrid of a young design duo named Casa Josephine. And that's always a sweet spot for AD. There's a long legacy of featuring designers' own homes. There's also a house in Lebanon that we were really excited to publish. It was the first ground-up single-family home by a great New York-based architecture firm named Work AC. And I think, you know, within the architecture world, within the, that career trajectory, your first house is such a huge milestone. And AD has been publishing houses of this nature for so long, and it's great to see that tradition continued. Other highlights, the list goes on, but I loved to work with Kamal on a house in India by a great firm named Wallmakers. And you, you sort of asked how we collaborate. And I really have been so excited to learn so much from my international colleagues. We've sort of multiplied our eyes many fold all across the world. So people are always bringing new projects, new firms to our collective attention and you know, the stories kind of morph in different ways, market to market. We package them in the ways that make sense. But to be able to share the work of a firm that perhaps had otherwise been primarily known in India with the larger AD US audience was a great treat. And I just want to ask Komal, not only perhaps the highlights of AD India, but I have to say, it feels to me that India is, a, there's a moment, there's something happening in India. And I think people outside India are becoming more interested in Indian design, culture, Do you notice that? And I think people, I mean, even people that are not in India, perhaps they're interested to read AD India as well. I'm glad you say that. But yes, it is definitely a moment, specifically like last month or earlier this month, we had in Mumbai at the Gateway of India, which is this iconic heritage site, we had the Dior show. And, you know, craftsmanship in India is such an important thing. And a lot of foreign international brands are actually crafted in India, especially textiles. And sort of Maria Grazia Curie, who is the creative director of Dior, by holding the fashion show in India at Gateway, she sort of, I felt like, brought to light something that has been the history for the last 30 years. And I think that was an important moment. A lot of international media was here. So, yes, it is having a moment in the sense that it's been very underground, the craftsmanship heritage and history of India. And now suddenly it's coming to the fore which is great for us. It's a matter of pride. It's also a matter of bringing more attention to this sector as India modernizes. And, you know, that sort of ancestral craftsmanship is a very ancestral generation to generation, a sort of profession, for lack of a better word, in India. But if you get that kind of attention and respect from the international media and markets, it's something that will only help this culture. It's one of the unique places in the world where you can still get things handmade at not a cost which is prohibitive. So to preserve that culture and to continue and thrive, it's very important that you bring this sort of attention. And in terms of collaboration, like at AD, like how Sam was saying, you know, when you talk to everybody, like last week at Salone, at Milan, all the heads of editorial content of all the ADs, 10 issues like Mexico, Spain, France, Germany, Italy, India, all of us met and we've been talking, meeting on Zoom every month, 
And it's literally like you have access to the world suddenly. And it's amazing. Like you can literally pick and choose what story you want from which part of the world and how it fits your theme. It makes you realize that, yes, we are very different culturally, but we're also more similar and more alike than different. Like the basic sort of instincts of beauty or what works or what people want to read, what they aspire to. It sort of feels like it's pretty similar, which is a nice feeling. It's nice to walk that way, I think. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting. I, I, I want to ask a question to Artie here, because even with Condenas Traveler, of course, you present as beautiful places to go, but you don't exotify that in a way. You're just, there's a lot of kind of locals perspectives on the magazine. I've been noticing that. And, and I want to ask you, how do you make the cut for the hot list? Because, you know, it's not every single hotel that will be there. I'm sure it's quite a hard process, actually. You mentioned that, you know, the list, there's a limit there to the list. So t tell us a bit more about how you guys choose the process. What, what makes the cut? Yeah, as you can imagine, there's a lot of back and forth and, and mm. lots of fun sort of debating and, and pushing back on things and pulling on certain things. So we really enjoy the process. You mentioned locals. At Kalinas Traveler, we really genuinely believe that locals make the best guide. We've just launched a series called Ask a Local, where we pick really interesting, cool locals in spots around the world and ask them to serve as guides and, and give us their best recommendations for their hometown. So it's, it's something we invest in pretty significantly. You asked about parameters for making sure that, you know, we're presenting the sort of the best of the best, whether it's a hot list, whether it's a goal list, which comes later in the year. One of our key brand pillars, and, and Komal and Sam talked about it, is sustainability. And it's, it's such a big word, isn't it? And so what does sustainability really, really mean to us? And on Earth Day, we published an exhaustive and what we'd like to believe is a really engaging guide to traveling more sustainably. And it speaks to a lot of the desires that exist among our community of travelers to sort of explore off-season travel, for uh, estuarine flights, for train journeys, for shorter distances, for choosing eco-hotel collections, and for, for staying longer at places, for engaging more deeply with local communities. We hear about slow travel a lot, and that speaks to a lot of this, which is really an intention, an intention to go slower, deeper, engage more, and come away feeling enriched and leaving those places and communities enriched as well as a result of your travel. So sustainability Going back to hot list is, is a key pillar and it can be broken down into all these different and very significant expressions of eco and responsibility and wanting to sort of offer greener propositions. So we do weigh up every single potential entry against all these very, very key and critical parameters. We know what our community of travelers is looking for. We're constantly making note of it and making sure that we're presenting the most robust list of places that are really going to set a new blueprint for travel. And I want to ask Sarah here, of course, the hot list issue now out and, and online as well. I want to ask, can you tell us some of the travel trends for this year, especially because people are returning to travel in, in huge numbers, I have to say. I think this desire is very much there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did a big trend report sort of towards the end of last year, all about kind of what we were expecting to see this year, obviously last year was really, you know, the first full year back with travel. It was very exciting. And one of my favorite trends, actually, I think everyone went a bit too crazy last year because one of them was sleep tourism. I think everyone kind of really exhausted themselves. You know, they really went for it. Lots of fun family travel. 
And yeah, this year we're seeing this real interest in sleep tourism. And there's a few kind of different hotels that are offering these different concepts. And there's a few things like sleep concierges, which actually a, a hotel, the Belmont Cadogan in Chelsea offers. It's like a, a service where you can listen to this meditation in your room before you go to sleep. There's a pillow menu. You could have a weighted blanket, scented pillow mist, all these sort of lovely things. And actually the Park Hyatt in New York has also just launched this incredible restorative sleep suite and it's got an AI powered bed. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's amazing. It's basically this incredible invention that senses your heart rate and your breathing and it cools your body temperature and it relaxes your body as you sleep. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. It sounds basically like going back to being a baby in a hotel room. It's like, it's amazing. So sleep tourism is definitely one of the things we're seeing. Transformation retreats, actually, as well. And this idea that, you know, it goes far beyond, I guess, like a, a spa. It's really going a lot deeper than your kind of lovely spa stay where it's very relaxing. You have a massage and that kind of thing. This is really about making really meaningful and long-lasting changes, different kind of spas and retreats in the UK and, and beyond. There's actually a Heartbreak Hotel in the UK, which is really interesting. It's this incredible program for women who are looking to, you know, look at their love attachment styles and manage heartbreak. So there's some really, really interesting concepts out there. But yeah, those are probably two of my favorite trends that I've seen this year. Wow, I'll be reading more about the Heartbreak one. I didn't know about that. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, and now let's hear from Artie as well in the Condé Nast Traveler Plans editorially this year. You know, there's just so much to be excited about. It's a truly buoyant time in the world of travel and, and there's absolutely no signs of things slowing down. So some of the things that we're really excited about and excited about covering and telling stories about Asia is reopening. There's a lot of excitement about traveling to Asia, which is, I'd say, you know, among our top favorite destinations. And I think that's uh, reflective of many of our readers. So we're very excited about Japan and, and Hong Kong. I was just in Hong Kong. It's reopened as well. And you know, this presents us with an opportunity to kind of rediscover familiar destinations and destinations that we love so much and see them in a new light. So we're very excited about Asia. We're very excited about all that's happening in the world of cruises. Expedition cruising is soaring in popularity, not just with experienced cruisers, but with adventurers who are fascinated by polar exploration. There's a bunch of other things that are happening in our world. Our family is growing. We are launching our Middle East edition later this year as an owned and operated property. Uh, we're very, very excited to be back in Dubai and be telling stories out of the region that are, you know, important stories to tell. And the other thing that we're very excited about, Condé Nast Traveler just announced its global advisory board, which consists of top experts in their fields, some of our, our closest friends and collaborators. And, you know, they are undoubtedly going to offer us powerful perspectives on travel and trends and more. So we're very exciting about the conversations that are going to unfold from those. Thank you to all my guests. AD Global Features Director Sen Cochran, AD India's Head of Editorial Content Komal Sharma, Condé Nast Traveler's Global Director for Digital Ati Menon, and Condé Nast Traveler UK Editor for Digital Sarah Alad. The 2023 International Journalism Festival has taken place in Perugia, with one of this year's themes centered on the future of print journalism. 
Alan Rusberger, formerly editor-in-chief of The Guardian for 20 years, is now editor of the monthly magazine Prospect. He sat down with Monaco Stoneweb to talk about the changing role, the importance of journalism in print, and the session he was there to moderate. I'm about to do an event with another small UK publisher, The New European, and its editor, Matt Kelly, who's done this extraordinary thing of starting a new newspaper which I don't think anybody thought there was a, a space for a new newspaper, but he's proved that there is. So we're going to talk about that, and I hope we're going to talk about Prospect and the future of magazines. So why is it hard to start a newspaper in this current climate? Well, I think if you'd asked anybody five years ago, they would have said the future was digital, that newspapers certainly are on the decline, the circulation's tumbling all over the place. And so it's quite counterintuitive to actually produce something in print, which also has a website. And actually, I've never sat down and talked about how he managed it. So I, I will be genuinely learning things in this session. So how is it that some magazines are surviving? Well, I, th I think the answer he will give, and it's certainly what I feel about Prospect, is that the world of news in general has got onto a hamster wheel and it can't get off it. That's not the fault of news providers. That's the fault of us, the readers and consumers, because we're constantly reaching into our pockets to check the headlines every five minutes. And so I think the winners are the magazines and newspapers that are taking a, a longer view and are slowing down a bit and are a bit more thoughtful and reflective. I hope that's the case, but the evidence seems to bear it out. Can you tell us more about Prospect? Prospect is a 25-year-old political monthly it's now owned by essentially a philanthropist who would like it to be a good business. It's not quite a good business yet. And it does what I've just described. So it, it's trying to think two, three, four months ahead about what will matter. It kind of, you know, as, as the editors, we have to sort of switch our minds off the headlines. So to give a couple of examples of, of recent covers, in January, we got Jonathan Powell, who was the architect of the Good Friday Agreement, to write about what peace in the Ukraine will look like. Now, nobody's talking about that at the moment. Nobody's talking about the negotiation. But his point was that eventually they will have to negotiate, and this is what they'll have to talk about. The following month, we had David Normington, who was the permanent secretary at the Home Office in the early 2000s, write about immigration. And he began by saying, look, all the headlines are about small boats. Actually, the small boats, it's a relatively small number. That is solvable. Why is nobody talking about the big picture? So I think that's what a magazine like Prospect can do. And does Prospect have any ambitions to be more international? Well, we tried to be international in, in our thinking and in, in our commissioning. It would be lovely if we could sell lots of copies abroad. I mean, I, I, the, the people who come to the website come from all over the world. I think it's about half UK, half not UK. But it's another thing I think that magazines like Prospect can do, which is to escape what sometimes feels like quite a claustrophobic parochial atmosphere in some British media. And your time as editor of The Guardian, how are you bringing that experience and, and wealth of skills into your new role? Well, I, I did that for 20 years, and obviously you acquire, I hope you do, I hope, I hope you acquire editing skills, judgment, a sense of what works journalistically, what doesn't, a sense of who writes well, a sense of who the audience is, a sense of how 
the technology of news and information and social media now work. All that comes to bear, but I have to say, editing a daily, which eventually became an hourly, if not minutely, uh, news organization is very different from sitting there with a cold compress on your head thinking, now what's going to be really important in September? So finally then, what is it about a, a magazine that attracted you to this position? Well, I do like training myself into this habit of reading and thinking about the news in a completely different way. And I think probably I would have to admit when I was at The Guardian, I did get too caught up in the the hour-by-hour hour rhythm of news. It's addictive. It's um, It's probably very bad for the body because you end up pumping adrenaline through your system, which makes you constantly feel jittery. But actually, my last year at The Guardian, I did set up what I called a slow news department. I'd sort of created a, an area where people were encouraged to make phone calls, to read books, to go out and lunch contacts, to think more deeply about issues, so that you had the, the news desk churning out the headlines of the moment. And then people think about, well, where did this come from and where's it going? I think those are two good questions that, that need to be asked in, in any news story. How did this happen? Because things don't come from nowhere. And how's it likely to end? So, yeah, I, I kind of, um, I, I was going to say I miss daily news. I don't think I do miss daily news, but it's nice to, to move my journalistic training into thinking about more long-term issues. And do you know if your legacy of slow news has continued? Well, I started the long read in The Guardian, and that's still going. So that's a, a read of about 4,000 words. And I think it's really important to have those long spaces because, I mean, famously, the attention span of everybody has got shorter. And frighteningly, you can now measure that. You can see when people stop reading an article. And I think the response of a lot of editors has not unnaturally been to write shorter pieces. That's fine. But there are some problems and issues that can only be told at length. If you truly want, you know, if you truly want to do justice to the the question of immigration, which is a really thorny issue about which people have very strongly held opinions, sure, you can write, you can do that in 400 words, you can do it in 800 words, but you're unlikely to get into the nuance. And I think there is a problem with quite a lot of journalism that it's it's not really helping policymakers and politicians either prepare the public for what they need to know, brackets, think climate change, or what the answers are. So if everything is presented as an easy win or an easy solution or a shatty headline, I don't think that's really good for, for societies we live in and how we, how we come up with the solutions that we need. So I do think having somewhere that may not have a mass readership but can get into problems in, in some depth is important. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpnmonaco.com. And even if you have a magazine suggestion for me as well. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monaco.com, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Harry Nielsen with Everybody's Talking. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean Like a stone 
Wow.